und schöne Grüße von City Breaks. Hallo, greetings from City Breaks. Welcome to City Breaks Munich, episode 12, in which I'm going to focus on sport, or perhaps more accurately, the sporting history of Munich. Things from the past which would be of interest to anybody who likes sport. So, for example, a history of the two very famous Munich football clubs, a look at the 1972 Olympics, which of course were staged in Munich. Sadly, that's far more about the terrible terrorist attack which took place then than it is about the sport. And finally, slightly shoehorned in, a little section on BMW. I'm justifying that because I think people who like sport quite often like fast cars and motorcycles and things. And also, of course, because BMW being one of the world's most successful companies, and certainly I think the biggest money spinner in Bavaria, does have a sporting connection because with some of all that loot that they make, they do in fact sponsor some of the big sporting events in the area. In each of those sections, I'd like to highlight one or two places which you can go and visit or things to look at, which reflect the events that I'm talking about. So that would be, for example, the fantastic Allianz Arena, the big football stadium built for the 2006 World Cup and the Olympic Park. And not forgetting, of course, the BMW plant, which you can go on a tour around and accompanying BMW Museum. I'm going to start then with football, Fußball, as the Germans call it. Surely the sport which more than any other has put Munich on the map. I think Munich is to Germany what, say, Liverpool or Manchester or London is to England, i.e. the city in which some of the very best football in the whole of the country is played. And in Munich there are two long-standing, very well-known football clubs. The better known of the two, although in fact it's not the oldest, is Bayern Munich, as we call it, or Bayern München, as the Germans call it, which was formed as early as 1900, formed in fact by people from the Münchner Turnverein, which means the Munich Gymnastic Club, by people who decided actually perhaps they preferred football, which they weren't allowed to play in the Münchner Turnverein, so they split away and formed their own club so that they could play as much football as they liked. Didn't get off to that cracking a start, I think it was 1932 before they first won the national championship, and the 1930s were a difficult time for the club, in fact. They became known as the Juden Club, or Jewish Club, partly because their president, one President Landauer, was Jewish. He was quickly made to resign, and the next thing that happened was the team went to Switzerland, where he was in exile, to visit him, which meant that they too then were very unpopular with the Nazis. Their trainer was also Jewish, and he fled to the Netherlands, and the club really became more and more irrelevant as the 30s and 40s progressed. In the post-war era, football got going again. Bayern Munich were nearly bankrupt after all that time of not really playing. They were relegated in 1955, and things began to look as if, really, they weren't going to ever get any better. When the German Bundesliga, so the main German football league, was founded in 1963, Bayern Munich weren't even one of the 16 teams invited to play. But two years later, in 1965, their fortunes began to take a much better turn. They had acquired not one, but three world-class players, Sepp Meyer, Franz Beckenbauer and Gerd Müller, who subsequently came to be known as the Axis, because they were really the axis on which the whole club turned. And in 1965, then, they were promoted into the Bundesliga. And that was the beginning of their first really successful run so in the next 14 years, they won, won the German League four times and a whole host of cups, German cups, European cups, etc. And no fewer than six of their players were part of the West German side that won the World Cup in 1974. So they really had reached the big time. 
Into the 1980s, they were still a very dominant club, partly, or in fact many people would say mainly, because of two newer players who took over the mantle from the first three, and they were Paul Breitner and Karl-Heinz Rummenigge. In fact, they were so much thought to hold the whole club together that the football club, in Munich anyway, became known as FC Breitniger. So, football club with a name joining together the surnames of the two players who were deemed to be keeping the whole thing propped up. More league victories, more titles, more cups. And in the 1990s, things came full circle a little bit when Franz Beckenbauer, who'd made such a name for himself playing in the 60s, came back to be their manager. Nicknamed Der Kaiser, which of course means Caesar, he was very popular. And a whole new phase began in 2005 when the team moved to a big new ground known as the Allianz Arena, state-of-the-art stadium, which was built for the 2006 World Cup, but whose legacy was to be that it was going to be the home ground of, not just in fact Bayern Munich, but of both the big football clubs. So Bayern München, if you're not really a football fan, they're the ones that play in red, and the other lot, who of course play in blue, who are nicknamed Die Löwen, the Lions, because they're sponsored and always have been by Löwenbräu, the brewery, but whose proper name is TSV 1860, or in German TSV 1860, or for short, Die 60er, the 60s. 1860, you'll have guessed it, is the year in which they were founded, and the TSV stands for Turn und Sportverein, which means Gym and Sports Club. So they too have their origins in a gymnastic club. Although they've kept the 1860 in their name, the football as such didn't really start until about the 1900. When I said they play in blue, that is true, but strictly speaking, their home strip is actually pale blue and white. So you'll recognise that combination as being the Bavarian colours. The colours you'll see on the flags in various places across the city and, of course, on the BMW logo. They had a very successful 1920s. They were playing in all the best leagues. And they weren't so badly affected by the 1930s because they were not famously the Judenklub, the Jewish club. And so they were encouraged, played in the best divisions, known as the Gauligen. They were regional, so the one they actually played in was called the Gauliga Bayern, so the Bavarian Gauligue, where they had a whole string of second places and eventually a first place in wartime, in fact, in 1941. In the 60s, when clubs were being chosen to play in the Super League, they gained a place, unlike their Munich rivals, Bayern München. But I think it would be fair to say that they've been playing second fiddle to Bayern München pretty much ever since, and currently they don't play in the top league where Bayern München play, they play in a lower league. So they may have been founded first, they may have got on much better in the under the Nazi regime, but these days, really, they're pipped at the post by their great rivals. And one thing that both teams have in common is that their home ground is the same. They both play in the Allianz Arena, the stadium in North Munich, which you can get to if you take the U6, that being underground line number six, and which was designed for the 2006 World Cup by the very same architects who designed Tate Modern. It has a very futuristic appearance. The roof, for example, is made up of pneumatic panels, 2,874 in total, should you be interested. And they're transparent and they conduct light well and they therefore mean that in this stadium actually natural grass can grow, unlike in many other stadia with roofs. But the other amazing thing about the panels is that they can be lit up in different colours and duly are for according to who's playing. So when Bayern München play there at home, the stadium lights up in red. When TSV 
1860 Owen Residence, then the roof lights up in blue, and when the national team play there, then it lights up in white. Very clever, although the locals call it a schlauchboot, which means inflatable boat, because that's sort of the shape that they've ended up with. And the Rough Guide had something to say about the shape too, Rough Guide to Munich, which writes the following, quote, It resembles an enormous tyre laid out along the autobahn, thanks to its air-cushioned façade. It even gets a mention in a book called A Thousand and One Buildings to See Before You Die, where it's described as, quote, a modern, adaptable, popular classic. And the Reba chairman, no less, the chairman of the British Architects Association, praised the architects by saying, quote, they reinvent everything with each new project and do it with such vigour. So, so much for the city's two famous sporting teams. The other main footballing connection with Munich is, of course, the tragic one, namely the Munich air disaster, which was a plane crash which took place on the 6th of February 1958, in which Manchester United lost eight players who were passengers on British Airways Flight 609, which was trying to take off from Munich that day in very snowy conditions. They hadn't actually been to Munich. They were travelling back from a match in Belgrade, former Yugoslavia. They'd played against Red Star Belgrade, beaten them, knocked them out of the European Cup and were on their way to the semi-finals. Returning home after the match, they stopped in Munich to refuel. And after two attempts at takeoff, it was decided that perhaps the flight would be cancelled. We know, for example, that one of the players who was killed, Duncan Edwards, had sent a telegram to his landlady reading, All flights cancelled. Flying tomorrow. Duncan. But then the captain seems to have had a rethink and decided to try takeoff a third time. The aircraft set off up the runway, hit a vast quantity of slush, and then ploughed through a fence and into a building. There had been 44 people on board, and 20 of them died at the scene. Another three died in the following days. They included eight members of the team, most of whom, of course, were very young. So Duncan Edwards, who people had said they thought would be the finest footballer of his generation, was only 21. And his colleague, Billy Whelan, the team's top scorer, was 22. Also on board was Bobby Charlton, who was only 20 at the time, and who survived and went on, of course, to be the England captain who won the World Cup in 1966. And manager Matt Busby, who also survived. This all happened, of course, in the suburb just near the airport, which is called Trudering, and where today, in a little square that's now been renamed Manchester Platz, so Manchester Square, you can find two memorials. The first one is a wooden memorial showing Jesus on the cross and a stone trough filled with flowers and with an inscription, in German and in English, which opens as follows. Im Gedenken an die Opfer der Flugzeugkatastrophe in memory of the victims of the air disaster. It's got the date, the 6th of February 1958, and lists the victims as being, quote, ein Teil der Fußballmannschaft von Manchester United, so part of the football team of Manchester United, and also Verkehrstorten der Gemeinde Trudering, people from the suburb of Trudering, who were also killed in the accident. And then just along from that, there's a second memorial which was put up and paid for by the Manchester United Club itself. It's a dark blue plaque designed in the shape of a football pitch on which there is the inscription, again in both languages, in memory of all those who lost their lives here in the Munich air disaster on the 6th of February 1958. And there's a little plaque underneath which expresses the club's gratitude to the city of Munich and the people of Munich for all the help that they extended to the club at the time of the disaster. 
So, leaving football behind, let's move on to the Olympics, which of course were staged in Munich in 1972, and which were ushered in in a spirit of really great optimism. 1972 was still quite early in the life of the new democratic Germany, and I think for Munich this really was seen as an opportunity to showcase their city to the world and to greet visitors from all over the globe to come and see what Munich could do. So the Olympia Park was built, and quite significantly it was built in fact on the rubble of ruins from World War II, the Trümmerberg, that we talked about in a previous episode. The area was landscaped, and a number of -of state-of-the-art buildings went up, so a 62,000-seater stadium, an Olympic hall, and an Olympic swimming hall all three covered by a vast transparent canopy. And that complex, in the middle of which is also the Olympic Tower, Olympiaturm, and the landscape park that surrounds it, is today a visitor attraction. Some five million people a year come to have a look. When it was built, it really was state-of-the-art. It was quite a new idea that, instead of just architects, it was designed in a partnership by an architect, Günther Bernisch, and an engineer, Frei Otto. And it was at least partly the transparent canopy that was suspended between the buildings on vast steel cables that really set the building apart. Lots of glass, glass, whole glass walls in some places, for example in the swimming pool. All this see-through acrylic as part of the roof. And really an Olympic complex designed in a way that hadn't been done previously, where the whole thing seemed to hang together as one whole, rather than being just a collection of buildings. Praised particularly, again in A Thousand and One Buildings You Must See Before You Die, where the author uses the wording, quote, with an exceptional consistency of architectural vocabulary for an Olympic site. So there was a lot of pride and optimism about the site. The 1972 Olympics were the Olympics of people like Mark Spitz and Olga Korbut. But sadly, in the end, it wasn't primarily for the sport that the event was remembered. It was for the terrorist attack. It took place in the Olympic Village on the 5th of September when gunmen from the Palestinian terrorist group Black September got into the village and took 11 Israeli athletes hostage. The athletes were all in bed. It was 4 o'clock in the morning when eight members of the terrorist group climbed the security fence and let themselves into the Olympic Village. They were wearing ski masks so they wouldn't be recognised and they were armed with Kalashnikov rifles and hand grenades. They must have made some disturbance because the Israeli wrestling referee, Yosef Gutfreund, heard a noise and came out to investigate, whereupon he was immediately shot with a submachine gun. So that woke everybody else up. Some of the athletes did manage to escape through the back door, but at least two others were shot there and then, and another group were taken as prisoner, taken as hostages. The terrorists' demand was that 200 Palestinians should be released from Israeli jails, And it did look at one point as if the authorities with whom they were negotiating were going to have some success because they managed to persuade the terrorists to take, or rather be taken by helicopter, to a nearby airbase. The terrorists and nine hostages were taken by helicopter to the airbase and were told that there'd be a plane waiting there for them to take them to Cairo. But at the airport, the West German authorities tried to stage a rescue attempt, which went badly wrong and all the hostages were killed five of the terrorists were killed, as was a police officer. Much of this was televised and shown on TV screens around the world. I think for anybody who remembers this, who was alive in the 70s, really the only other event with which you could compare it would be the September 11th events in New York in 2001. 
The games were immediately suspended and a memorial service was held, which was also transmitted all around the world. But then it was decided that the game should continue. These shocking events were commemorated in two different films. There's the Spielberg film, Munich, and there's also a documentary entitled One Day in September. Today there are two memorials that you can see. One is in the Olympic Park, just outside the Olympic Village, on which are listed in Hebrew all the names of the murdered athletes and also the names of the German police who died, trying to rescue them. And then in the Olympic Village itself, there's a plaque outside the building where the Israeli team were actually staying, Connollystrasse, so Connolly Street, number 31, a building which has been left just as it looked in 1972, with a plaque on it on which is written, The team of the State of Israel stayed in this building during the 20th Olympic Summer Games. On the 5th of September, then there's a list of all their names, died a violent death. Honour to their memory. Munich's Olympic Park is definitely one of the 20th century sites that many visitors like to visit, and it's quite handy that not too far away from it is a very different institution, also very popular with visitors, and that is BMW, the factory and the museum, both of which give entry to visitors, and which will tell you all about Bavaria's probably most famous company and what they do. It's only loosely connected to sport, in that it's one of the sponsors of some of the biggest sporting events in Bavaria. But it's very interesting in its own right. BMW actually stands for Bayerische Motorenwerke, so Bavarian Engine Works. And that's significant because it didn't start life as a car factory. It was founded in 1916 to produce aircraft engines. Which is why, if you've ever wondered what the BMW logo is about, their symbol looks like moving propeller blades against a sky blue background. That's the aircraft connection. It wasn't very long, three years later in 1919, when the Versailles Treaty was signed. Many limits were put on German armaments and Germany building up production of anything that they could use in future wars. And aircraft production was curtailed. But the company didn't close. It turned immediately to making cars and motorcycles and quickly became Munich's largest employer. During World War II, they did secretly begin to make aircraft engine again. And that made them a target for Allied bombers. The factory was more or less destroyed and in 1945, when the Americans arrived, it was completely dismantled. But then, as we all know now, it got going again after the war and now the statistics to do with it are incredible. 10,000 employees, making 800 cars a day, not to mention 1,200 engines every day as well, and making products which are worldwide famous. If you want to see how it's done, you can visit the factory. You can go on a factory tour. You have to book ahead, really, I think, because they're very popular. If you just turn up, there won't be a space. But they do them in English as well as in German. You can go right into the factory and see exactly how they work. And next door to the factory is the BMW Welt, so BMW World, which is effectively a museum and a promotion centre for the company. A place where you can see BMW cars and motorbikes, about 125 different ones, from every vintage, and lots of photographs and information about the work of the factory throughout the 20th century. An absolutely futuristic building, a symbol of modern, successful Munich. And which, bringing it back to the subject of this week's episode, is also a sponsor of sport. If you want to watch some sport in Munich, you might be attracted by the BMW International Open Golf Tournament, which takes place in August every year, or the BMW Open Tennis, which is staged in the spring. 
Or, of course, you might be tempted by a football match at the wonderful Allianz Arena. When it comes to participating in sport while you're in Munich, one of the very popular Munich activities with the residents, as well, of course, as with the tourists, would be hiking, hiking trails in and around the city. Or if you want to go a little further out, some more rugged walking is to be had in the nearby Alps. Munich, of course, is also a centre for winter sports, or rather the area immediately around it is. And another very German, very Bavarian, very Munich sporting activity is the whole wellness industry, as they call it. Wellness is now a German word, and it refers to looking after yourself and remaining well and healthy, and revolves around things like spas, health facilities, places like the well-known Mathildenbad, loosely translated as Matilda's Bath, which is a Turkish bath in the city centre. If visiting places is more your thing, then just to round up, I'd like to remind you of the several places I've mentioned, which are very much on the visitors' list, things to see when you're in Munich. And that would be the Allianz Arena. You can go on a tour of the stadium itself and you can visit something called the Erlebnisfeld, which means experience world and is really a museum. Loads of exhibits, film clips, interactive displays and if you're lucky, even an event. They have autograph hours, for example, presumably... One of the players is in attendance and will sign autographs. And they have meet the star sessions. Again, probably very booked up. You need to find out in advance on the club website. And then, of course, also mentioned in this episode, the Olympia Park and the BMW Museum. Both places where you could happily spend half a day or actually even longer if you get really into it, I would say. So that more or less rounds up my offering on what there is in Munich for anybody who's interested in sport. It is, in fact, the penultimate planned episode in the series. So next week, we're going to round off the whole thing with something a bit different, with an episode on what the Germans call Essen und Trinken, eating and drinking, both very popular activities in Bavaria. So we'll have a look at some of the things that you might enjoy eating when you're in Munich. Bavarian cuisine is something that Bavarians are very proud of. And, of course, we can't possibly talk about Munich without mentioning beer, not least because of the various very well-known breweries in the city. You'll be pleased to know there's more than one museum connected to that. And, of course, there's the Oktoberfest, that annual world-famous beer festival, which, bizarrely, takes place in September. So, all of that to look forward to, to finish off the series on Munich. And I hope you'll be joining me for that. But for the meantime, I'd just like to thank you very much for listening. Vielen Dank. And to wish you goodbye until next week. Auf Wiederhören. <laughs>